Last week we covered the first part of our three enemies, which were what? Does anybody remember we talked that we have three enemies as believers? What were they? The flesh is one. That's the part we're studying now. What else do we have? The world and the devil. I like the flesh study because it's the part of us that is super applicable and the part that we maybe not control is the word I'm looking for, but the part that we can have victory over uh, through our own participation. Uh, But next week we're going to start looking at the world system. And people always talk about the world. When you talk in scripture, when you hear the words, the world, or the world system, what does that mean? How is that an enemy to believers? And is it true? Or is that just a concept that's out there? So I'm excited to talk about that next week. But before we do that, I still think it's important that we wrap up this section on the part of us that wants what we want, uh, rather than what God wants for us. Uh, because scripture says that we can have victory over that. Because there's another part of us that comes to indwell us when we believe, and that's the Holy Spirit. So let's just look at our goals. Actually, let's look at the source verse from Galatians 5, 24 and 25. It says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, who is that, by the way? Yeah, it's believers. Those who have belonged to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also walk by the Spirit. So we're going to see this today. That that's you know the spoiler alert for how to have victory over the flesh is to walk by the Spirit. But that is super uh, abstract. Like if we were to walk into a Sunday school class or a grow group in this church or many other churches, and you ask them the question, "What does it mean to walk by the Spirit?" What type of answers do you think you would receive? It's hard. It's like, I don't know. You know I, don't, I don't really know. Maybe you guys do. And if I, if I catch you off, tell me. When you hear the words, walk by the Spirit, what comes to mind? Prayer. Okay. Christ-likeness. What else? The fruits of the Spirit. Yeah, I think that's a good one because it's, we're actually going to see that today you can actually tell if someone is living and that's going to have some sort of bearing on what comes out in their life if they're walking by the Spirit. Um, But we see that phrase, walk by the Spirit, and it seems like there's a verb, or there's an action for us to take as people. Because it's a command. We're told to walk by the Spirit so that we don't carry out the desires of the flesh. The problem is, if I go into a grow group and say, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? And they say, well, the fruit of the Spirit. It still doesn't tell me how to do it. It tells me what it's going to look like. So that's what part of this study is going to be, because part of our identity, and that's what this whole thing is about, who we are in Christ, is that just as much as it's true that the bonds of the flesh used to be our master, the Holy Spirit now lives in us and enables us to live a life that's pleasing to God, a life that bears the fruit of the Spirit, that shows love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So let's look at some lesson goals. Uh, One goal is that we recognize the tension that the flesh creates within every believer. We've talked about that a little bit last week and in some of the other lessons. But what is that tension? It's the pull. Okay, so let's just draw. We've got this tension going here and going here. And we're going to call it a pull. 
Okay, what is the tension between? To do the right thing and what is it? Wait, 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 wait. To 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 do the right thing. No. God, there's a better way to word this. As Paul said, you know, why do I do what I Yeah. Just the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Yeah, what a wretched man I am. He is talking about this flesh. So on one side, we've got the flesh that's pulling us to do what it wants. What's on the other side? Spirit. What spirit? Holy Spirit. Okay, is that the same as the spirit that lives in, or is that the same thing as the human spirit? No. It's not. It's separate. So we've got this tension inside of every believer. There's part of us that wants to do what we want that's apart from what God wants for us. This is what we're going to conceptualize later in the lesson is selfish. It's what we want apart from what God wants for us. And then we've got the Holy Spirit and what does He want? What's us do what pleases God. That's exactly right. And what's best for us. That's a good point. It is best for us because that's what God wants. He wants it's what's best for us. But what that means is not yielding to the flesh to fulfill its desires, but to yield to the Holy Spirit and to love God and to love others. That can't be done here. That can't be done in the flesh. All right, so we want to recognize that tension. And then as we've already spoken about, we want to understand what Scripture means by walking by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. The third thing is that we want to know and understand the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Let me ask you a question that goes, and we're going to pull on this string a little bit here in a minute. Look at this third goal. To know and understand the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Can you always tell if someone's a believer based on how they live? No. You can't. Should you be able to? Mm -hmm. You should. Paul actually did a really great job here in Galatians of saying, You'll know at least if somebody's living by in the power of the flesh or being pulled by the flesh or if they're yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit. In the famous verse that we just talked about with the fruit of the Spirit, did you know that he actually gives a deed of the, the deeds of the flesh as well? <laughs> right before that, he says, if someone's living by the flesh, here's what it's going to look like. But if someone's yielding to the Spirit, then there's going to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control, all those things. I didn't say them all in order, but those are things. The fourth thing is that there's this uh, mnemonic device, maybe a good way to think about it is what I'm saying, or a good way to remember it, is this lesson, we're going to look at some things that we should know that are going to help us with our identity. Some things that we're to consider. There's a difference between knowing something and considering it or thinking about it. And then some things that we're to present. Know, consider, present. And that has to do with our identity in Christ. And then finally, something that's wrapped up in this is that because you can't always tell a Christian by their deeds, because we do yield to the flesh and we sin, it's important to know how to deal with that when we fall into that trap. Our goal is to have victory and to not sin, but we're still in the flesh and we still have temptation that we're going to yield to. And it's important to recognize that when that happens, how do we deal with that immediately? And so we're going to see how to restore fellowship after sin. So a quick review for those who weren't here last week or just to catch you up. We conceptualize the, conceptualize the flesh as our sinful nature. 
When I say that it's our sinful nature, what do I mean? The pool. Yeah, it is the pool, but what's natural about it? I'm born with it. Yeah, you're born with it. When you come into this world, you have it. You can't escape it. And does it go away when you believe? It doesn't. You still have to deal with it. So it's our sinful nature that pulls us to do what we want apart from what God wants for us. Number two, it's our enemy. We studied last week that it has dominance over believers. They're chained to it. They cannot escape it. They're born with it, and they're stuck with it. So it has dominance over believers. And it prompts believers to do their own will instead of God's will. All right, three, Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection took away sin, conquered death, and dealt a victorious blow to the dominance of the flesh. We've talked about that since week one, that the chains of the flesh are broken. We no longer have to be a slave to the flesh and to sin. We don't have to be chained to death anymore. Sometimes we put ourselves back under its bondage. But we don't have to. Four, we saw last week that we cannot overcome the corruption of the flesh. It says on its own, it should say on our own. We cannot overcome the corruption of the flesh on our own. We had to have Jesus to break the chains for us. And we can't achieve goodness on our own. Even though the chains are broken, we still have to have the Holy Spirit, which we do that enables us to live a life that's pleasing to God, to achieve righteousness or goodness. So then the question becomes, how then, if this is true, and it is, how does the Christian achieve victory over the flesh? If we've got this natural part of us that comes at birth, and it doesn't go away, then how do we achieve victory? Let's start at seeing the tension. Let's start at looking at this pool. In Galatians 5.13, Paul says, you're called to freedom, brethren. Who's he writing to? Christians. Writing to Christians. That's important to this conversation. You're called to freedom, brethren. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. I want to stop and talk about this for a second. You just told me he's writing to believers. So when we go back and think about what we read last week in Romans 6, 7, and 8 about the flesh, we have to admit that believers have a choice to live carnal, to live in the flesh. Otherwise, why would Paul say you're called to freedom? Wouldn't he say it doesn't matter? Now that you're a believer, you won't live in the flesh. That's not what he says. He says you're called to freedom. You have the choice. Just don't let it turn into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. I want you to start thinking about it this way. Flesh is self and self-serving and selfish. Holy Spirit is loving, sacrificing for the good of God and for the good of others. It's serving Him. It's living a life that's pleasing to Him. It's selfless. So Paul says you're called to freedom. You have a choice how you're going to live. Just don't let it turn into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. And look at at how he explains it. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's interesting. 
when you talk about the law, and he is referring to the Mosaic law here. Jesus said the same thing. What's the one word that sums up the law? Because he says one word, but then he gives a whole statement. What's the word in that statement that we should be looking at? It's love. We're going to look at later in this series on what I think is probably my favorite lesson in this series. It's on love. This word, in the English vernacular, in the United States especially, means something different. Just like you can go into different Sunday school classes and ask people what it means to walk by the Holy Spirit, you walk up to anybody and ask them to define love for you, and you will get many different answers. Is it an action? Is it an emotion? Is it a feeling? Is it something sexual? What is love? And what we're going to see, especially from this series, uh, love is probably the most important thing in the Bible. It's why Jesus died for us. It's why God sent Jesus to die for us. The greatest commandment is to, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's number two. To love God. Love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then the night before Jesus went and died on the cross, he changed it from love others as uh, he, he changed it. What does he change it from? I just went blank. Instead of love, love your love neighbors yourself. Like yourself love, like love others as I have loved you. And he says, I'm going to go sacrificially die for you. So there's this element of sacrifice that's embodied in the word love. Husbands, love your wives. Ephesians 5 25. Jesus Christ also loved you and gave himself up for her. That's sacrifice. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. That's sacrifice. You can't do that here because it's selfish. You're doing what you want for your good or what you think is your good instead of walking with it, yielding to the Holy Spirit and sacrificing for loving others. So this is going to be exciting to look at when we get there. I'm super pumped. But he says, you're called to freedom. Just don't turn into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by each other. Then look what he says. In contrast to consuming one another. In contrast to biting and devouring one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. Why are they in opposition to one another? So that you will not do the things you please. <coughs> we want to do this, and Paul knows it, because Paul wants to do it. But he says it's black and white. There's no gray scale here. This, this is not on a slider scale, black and white. He said it is either or. Walk by the Spirit so that you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you won't do the things that you please. And keep in mind, he has just said in verse 13, just don't turn, let it turn into an opportunity for the flesh. Then in 18 he says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Now, he's going to get to it. I'm going to tell you what this looks like. That's what Paul's saying here in 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. If you're yielding to the flesh, it's going to be evident. 
which are immorality, and we're going to look at every single one of these words in the Greek here in just a minute, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and then the best part about this verse is the blanket statement and things like these. It's going to look specifically like these things, but also things that fit inside those categories. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Inheriting to inherit is different than entrance. But verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, not the deeds of the flesh, we're going to contrast those two right now, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Why? Because those things are loving. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. I told you last week that when you talk about the flesh, it's uncomfortable. And it can be challenging because it can be convicting. Because everybody, if everybody has a flesh, then everybody has their own battle. In the deep, dark places that nobody wants to talk about, there's a struggle. There's a pull. And I think often, especially with Christians, we find ourselves thinking that we're covered by grace so we don't have to worry about it. And we end up yielding to the flesh. And we find ourselves in this first list rather than demonstrating the second list. So the original question, where is the tension? It's between the flesh and the Holy Spirit. There's a tension inside of you. Part of your identity in Christ is that you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Also, part of your identity as a human is that in this body and on this earth, you're going to fight with the flesh. So there's going to be this tension. So let's think about it. Based on what we've talked about so far, and I've said it, but you now teach me, you tell me, why is there a tension? Not what is the tension. Why is, that t why is there a tension? What about the flesh and what about the spirit set itself in opposition to one another? Flesh is um, well, self, self-motivated. <clears throat> um, yeah, there you go. It's half of it. What's the other half? Holy Spirit's love. Yeah. So you could say, another way you could say it, the flesh promotes who? Self. The Spirit, Holy Spirit promotes who? God. Okay. The Spirit promotes God's interests. 
and the flesh promotes self-interest. Does that make sense to you? Does anybody have a problem with that? The flesh is selfish because it looks out for what you want apart from what God wants for you. The Holy Spirit is selfless because its focus is on others. The focus is on God and others. Yeah, I don't have a problem with the teaching. I just have a problem with the flesh. Yeah, we all do, which is why we're talking about it. I think that if I think that if Christendom, and I mean by Christendom, I mean the, the church, the world church at large, taught this and understood this, then we could unify around it, and there would be more understanding. I specifically brought up the example last week at the end of the lesson when I said, when people don't get this, they tend to be legalistic, or they tend to be comparative, and they say, I would never do that, or I'm thank God I'm not like that person. No, you're just like that person. I think another way to look at that too on the flesh side is what can I get? But on the Holy Spirit side, what can I give? Oh yeah, that's good. Get and give. Yeah. There's like a difference there. like that. Coach Holder and T.B. Pickens used to say there's two types of people in the world. There's givers and there's takers. Be a giver and surround yourself with givers and you'll be successful. And there's some truth there. Not just from a worldly aspect, but especially from a spiritual aspect. I think, you're, I think that's true, Lisa. Thank you for that. Um, I, but my, you know, we, we, if we conceptualize this this way, and we apply it in our lives, you stop being less critical of people because of what they're going through, and because of their sin, and you start focusing and realizing where your own deficiencies are, and you start loving them. And we're going to see a perfect example of that. How many of you have eternal life? How many of you are going to run into other people in eternity? What are you going to say to David? What attitude are you going to have towards David? Are you going to treat him like he was a man after God's own heart, or are you going to treat him as a murderer and adulterer? He was both. Because he was both, just like we are. Just like we're both. And the problem with the church at large is we've got a bunch of finger pointings outward and not very many pointing inward. And it's because we don't conceptualize this because most people say that if you live here, you're not a Christian. And that's not true. Christians deal with it just as much as everybody else does. That's exactly why the unbelievers call us hypocrites. Right, and we it's are. because they don't, but they don't understand any of this. Right, and, and, and neither do the Christians. <laughs> right. The unbelievers definitely don't. Right. And we are hypocrites. Well, we just have to be willing to admit that to the unbelievers and say we are. Thank God, though, that I can't achieve goodness on my own. That I couldn't break the dominance of the flesh on my own, but Jesus did. And because of what he did, I have to put my faith in him and start to grow and conform to be more and more like him. So the flesh's desire and the spirit's desire are exact opposites. The spirit promotes God and the flesh promotes self. Potentially even as a God. We talked about that last week. That's really what you're saying. When you know, when you are presumptuously here, and you're saying, I'm going to go do that, and I know it's wrong, you're literally saying to God, I know what you want from me, but I'm going to do this anyway. 
And you're making yourself out in that moment to be a God because you're more important and your word is more powerful than him. Even though it's not, that's what you're acting like. The spirit is selfless and the flesh is selfish. So according to this passage that we just read, why should we walk by the spirit? So I want you to read verse 16. The answer's right there. There's one of the answers. Why should we walk by the spirit? So we will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's one reason. Is that what the Word of God says? So when someone says to you, like I said to you at the beginning of this class, how do we have victory? What's the shortest answer? Walk by the Spirit. And if that's the answer, we know better know what that means, which most people don't. And I'm not saying that we have the perfect answer, but we're going to look at it. The desires of the flesh promotes self. I put that underneath it. Okay, so why else should we walk by the Spirit? It's, it's included, but it's, it's a little bit more uh, passive. He doesn't directly say it right after 16, but if you go down to verse 22, it says it will demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit so that we will demonstrate its fruit. The desire of the Spirit promotes God and others. The desire of the Spirit promotes God and others. They have this, each of them have this, uh, they're in opposition to one another. They have this will. God's will is against self. The flesh's will is against God. They set their desires against one another. They're in opposition to one another. So, in a sense, and this is an important word that I'm using it intentionally. As Christians, okay, not as unbelievers, but as Christians, we participate with the Holy Spirit. Okay, I don't there's not a blank in here, but I want you to think about that. We have the opportunity because the Holy Spirit lives in us, or lives inside of us, excuse me, because the chains of the flesh have been broken, that doesn't automatically mean that you will demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, but in participation with the Holy Spirit, we can carry out God's will through us. Does that make sense? We can participate. So who gets to do some of the work? In a sense. We do. Because of Jesus, who did all the work in justifying us? Jesus did. Because of Jesus' work, we can have eternal life. Because of Jesus' work, we're declared righteous by faith. However, in our Christian life, the present tense experience, the sanctification part of our life, we get to participate with the Holy Spirit. The reason I'm saying that is because there's an emphasis on our works. Now our works come into play because we can make a decision. Are we going to yield to this? Or are we going to obey this? Or walk by this, if you'll say it that way. We get to participate in that ministry. The burden of responsibility, once we have eternal life and we've been justified, 
we can now participate in our sanctification, in our maturity, in our growth, our spiritual life. What, uh, what does it mean when, you're, when it says, but if you are being led by the spirits, you aren't under the law? Okay, so let me ask you this. And this is more relevant to them than it was us, because this, there was a paradigm shift for them. Uh, when he's writing this, the law is still very much uh, in play. So let me ask you this. For those people at that time that are practicing law, or the law, the Mosaic law, uh, what happens when they put their faith in Jesus? Then they don't have to follow the law. Yeah, it's done. Matter of fact, whether they put their faith in Jesus or not, he fulfilled it. And so now he's saying, if it's true that you are being led by the Spirit, and we know that for believers, they have the Spirit, they're not under the law. Just like he said at the end of verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, and he gives the list. Against such things, there's no law. Because it's summed up in one word. In, in love. Uh, he emphasizes the same thing in Romans. You don't owe anything to anybody. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love them because he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. I like what it said in, in this version. It says, um, all these leaves, and, you know, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and everything. There is no law against things like this. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And there's, there's no law against love. That's actually the law we're under now. We're actually under the law of love. So there's no law against it. All right. So verses 19 through 25, which we're going to get to here in just a second, demonstrate what a lifestyle will look like when you're walking in the Spirit in another when you're walking in the flesh. How will you know? How will you know which one you're yielding to? You may not be able to tell if you're a believer, but you can definitely tell if you're walking uh, according to the flesh, according to the Spirit. So I've got this chart here. Here's all the things that he says. This is what it's going to look like. And I went through and just pulled them out and did the same thing where I look at the strongs and the failures and condensed them into little definitions. So he said, here's some things that if you're living in the flesh, this is how you might be characterized. I think about like Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> You might be fleshly if you're into immorality. And all that is, that could be any sin that is sexually illicit. Any sin that is sexually illicit. You know, you start thinking about that, and we don't have to get into specifics in this class. Uh, but that may, you know, you think about what all that includes. What all does the banner of sexually illicit sin cover? Is it lust? Is it masturbation? Everything is it just looking marriage. at pornography? Like, what is it? Everything outside of marriage. Here's what I think it means. Because Jesus sums it up for us. When he equates the worst of the situation, which is adultery, with lust, of just looking at someone with lust, he makes no distinction. and says they're the same thing. Because it's a hard issue. And if your heart is trapped in any sort of immorality, that's a deed of the flesh. Impurity. This is just any moral uncleanliness. Do you guys remember last week when we were talking about the flesh? And I said, this always isn't sexual. It doesn't have to be just sexual. 
It certainly includes sexual, but it has more to do with your heart. Are you looking out for your good or for others? And a lot of times, while we're looking out for our good in this physical body, we engage in some other sort of moral uncleanliness. Sensuality, this is sexual. Okay? Our culture, you can come, come spend a day with me on campus and come into the union at lunch. It's different than it used to be. We are in a sensual culture to where they are brazenly, openly presenting themselves as objects of lust. Both men and women, by the way. We're at that point right now to where sensuality is a part of our culture and society. It's unbridled, it's unashamed, it's brazen, and it's insolent lust. I don't care. I've got it, so I'm going to show it. Or I don't care. He's got it, so I'm going to look at it. That's just where we're at. Idolatry, this one's interesting. Because we obviously think about idols, you know, you think about like Indiana Jones going and taking the little gold idol. It's more than that. What what else is it, what what else can do we see from scripture that idols can be? Your bank account. Money? What else? Objects, house, cars. It can be anything that you value above God or your relationship with him. Convenience? How often today in our culture and society are people sacrificing their children at the altar of convenience? They're saying, oh, I don't want to deal with that right now. It's not bad. I'm going to do this. I'm guilty of that, by the way. That's not a dig at anybody because Brandy and I engaged in that same stuff. That's not a dig. But what I'm saying is it can be. There's nothing inherently wrong with your children watching right now. That's not what I'm saying. But when you're letting that raise your children, you're really saying to God, is my child a blessing or is he a burden or she a burden? Because Psalm says that children are a blessing from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. But so often we treat them like they're burdens. And we sacrifice them at the altar of convenience. And that can look many different ways. And that's hard-hitting, and I get that, but the conversation about the flesh is convicting. It makes us think about stuff like that. Sorcery? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that was weird to think about, because we don't think about it. But do we, are there spiritual forces at play? Oh, yeah. There are. Uh, you don't have to look very hard in the Old Testament to see uh, references to witches, to ghosts, to angels, even in the New Testament. We live in a spiritual realm that we don't see. Paul says, don't get involved with that. In J.B.'s Angels and Demons class, he talks about not engaging in spiritual things for that reason. So you have to hold that at an arm's length. Enmities. Enmities are just actively and consistently opposed or hostile to someone or something. Have you ever known a person like that? To where it's like, man, that person is always looking to create problems with somebody. That person's always creating enmity. Why are they doing that? It could be to run a person down so they feel better about themselves. It could be to generate some, they may frame a situation so that it generates an outcome that's good for them. That's an enmity. That's, that's a deed of the flesh. Strife. 
This is contentious behavior. What in the world is contentious mean? Negative. Yeah, negative behavior. Yeah, it can't. Yeah, it is. It is negative. When like, a, like in Proverbs, when the author of Proverbs compares a nagging wife or a contentious wife to a dripping faucet. Or it's better to live in the corner of a rainy rooftop than with a contentious woman. What's that? I, I'm not. It's not big. Trust me. I'm a contentious man. Men can be just as contentious. But just for the purpose of conceptualizing that word, content, somebody who's contentious or somebody that's always looking to argue. And by always, I don't mean every now and again they present a problem to somebody. It's the person that always wants to argue about something. They are constantly nagging about it. That's contentious. Why are people contentious, and how is that a view of the flesh? Typically, that involves control. They're trying to control an outcome, or trying to change a person, or trying to uh, bring about a desired effect that is good for them. Jealousy. Everybody, I mean, I, I say everybody, maybe it's just because it's a big deal for me. Negative zeal that emulates envy. Zeal in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but when you're passionate about wanting what somebody else has or who they are, that's jealousy. Outbursts of anger, the actual Greek word in there is like a flaring of the nostrils, the idea of breathing hard and anger. You ever been so mad? Yeah, that's what he's, that's what he's getting at there. And that's, that's, I think this one is, it, it's for everybody, but I think this one is a, is a little bit more geared to men. I think men get angrier faster, maybe have short fuses. Uh, disputes, this is just situations formulated. And I want to say a caveat here, just saying, we'll read it. Situations formulated to force people to choose sides. And it has the idea of political elections. So when you think about a dissension or a dispute, this is you creating a situation that forces people to take sides for your benefit. People do that. There's some people who are really good at it. Dissensions is just division and disunion. This is when somebody creates uh, a lack of unity or an intentional division that's designed for their good and for somebody else's bad. Factions are those different groups of people who think a certain way about a certain thing. This group thinks this, this group thinks that. By the way, should we always agree on stuff? You don't know. It's not a sin to disagree. How you go about disagreeing is the problem. Tearing somebody down to build yourself up in disagreement, that's fleshly. Going to somebody and say, hey, you know, help me to understand this because the way I see it, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not division, faction, strife, any of that stuff. It's how you go about doing it. It's what's the heart of the matter. Envying, just wanting what somebody else has. Drunkenness, we all know what that is. Crowsing, I think in the NIV this is orgies. It's just loud corporate partying or drinking. It doesn't have to be sexual, but it has that idea. And then the blanket statement, things like these. Fleshly actions promote self, just like every single one of these things. These deeds of the flesh promote self. They, they seek to achieve self-desire at the expense of the 
love, joy, peace, patience, unity, or the needs of others. Keep in mind, these stand in opposition. They set their will. These actions are inherently opposite from what God wants. They're going to go into this side, not this side. So in contrast to that, we get the fruit of the Spirit. And what's the first one? Love. I don't think it's first by by chance. I think Paul was intentional. It's the greatest commandment. It's the second greatest commandment. It's why God sent Jesus. It's why Jesus died. Love is everything. Sacrificing what you want for others is love. Love always has good, the good, of the other person at heart. This is agape love. Unconditional. Unmerited. The type of love that Christians are just supposed to display to everybody, by the way. A lot of times we relegate it to just our spouse or our kids and say, I'm just supposed to lay, be able to lay my life down for my wife and for my kids. It's not just them, it's everybody. Agape love is for unbelievers, it's for believers, it's for people that are hard to love, it's for people that don't deserve your love, frankly. And as Christians, we're called to do that. And Jesus says that especially when we have that love for one another, that people will know we're his disciples. He said, by this... All people will know you're my disciples by your love, one for another. And that makes sense when you consider the fact that it's supernatural. That type of love will make people know we're his disciples because it comes from the Holy Spirit. It's a type of love that you're not willing to demonstrate and unable to demonstrate beforehand because you're Chained to the flesh. Everything's self, it's all about you. There's nothing else. Why would it be? The second thing is joy. This is delight for others. This is uh, happy to be with others. Happy to do life with others. To be with others. Peace. Okay? When I say the word peace, what I'm talking about, that's harmony or in accord with somebody. And I put Romans 1 there. Because by our faith in Jesus, we are justified and we have peace with God. If you guys remember, we talked earlier that we, we we were at odds with God before we believed. We were his enemies. We had enmity with him. But because we put our faith in him, that barrier against him and our opposition against him changes. And we now can participate with him. We have peace with him. The fourth one is patience. This one, and anybody, especially with young kids, or a difficult spouse, or a difficult coworker, or a difficult boss. Patience inherently involves another person. <laughs> and that's why it's on the side of the fruit of the Spirit. This is enduring, consistent perseverance for or with somebody. And my daughter, Reese, is honest about this. She says, I don't have that. <laughs> I'm just like, Reese, just be patient. She said, I, I can't. And then we have a conversation about this exact topic. Kindness. And that's something else I want to say. When you look at these lists of words in Scripture, you have to remember that 
there's not always a, a perfect translation from the Greek to the English. Because what we mean by kindness, we're not normally talking about moral excellence or integrity. But that's what he's saying. It's kind to have integrity towards somebody. Or it's kind to have moral excellence with people. Goodness is what we think it means. Virtually, uh, <laughs> virtuous or uprightness. Just goodness. Faithfulness. This is really has an idea of showing trust. Showing trust born of faith or reliable. This one's a big, this one is underrated. Because often when we think about faithfulness, we think about it in our relationship with God or to God or we're referring to what we think about Jesus. Oh, I'm faithful because I believe. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about being trustworthy and reliable with other people. Are you faithful to show up? Are you faithful to help? Are you reliable? Can I count on you? When Nathan says he's going to do something, he does it. I know it because I've done life with him. He's faithful in that way. When people say they're going to be there, can you count on them to be there? Gentleness? What about this one? We live in a culture, society, where we want to be right. We want to be seen as authoritative and as powerful. And gentleness may be seen as weak. It's actually the opposite. It's easier to feign or to fake power and authority and hardness and toughness. Uh, It's hard to show a mild disposition or gentleness with people, especially when you're wrong. And we're not going to talk about it in this series, but in 2 Timothy 2, he says, look, if you want to be who the Lord wants you to be, he says the Lord's bondservant shouldn't be quarrelsome, but it should be kind to all, gentle to those who have wronged you. That's hard to do. That's supernatural. How many of you, when you're wronged, want to respond gently with that person? It's hard to do. Because it's supernatural. It's a fruit of the Spirit. What about self-control? This one's convicting because it's somewhat, you know, covers everything over on the left side. You know, self-control is effective participation with, with the power of the Holy Spirit or yielding to the Spirit. When you're tempted to be immoral, or when you're tempted towards sensuality, or strife, or outbursts of anger, or jealousy, or drunkenness, can you master that desire and passion with self-control? You can't, but you can because of the Holy Spirit through you. You can yield to the Spirit. And that's really, to bring it full circle, the chains of the flesh are broken. You can, by the way. You can have self-control. You can be patient. You couldn't before, but you can now, which is what we're going to talk about, which is to know and consider and present. This is the how to have victory. We've already seen this passage in Scripture once in this lesson, but we're going to cover it again. Victory for Christians in their daily walk begins with the realization that we're new creations in Christ. Does that make sense? Do you believe that? The foundation, meaning the beginning, 
like we talked about in week one, our victory in our daily walk for believers begins with realizing that we're new creations. We talked about this. If you do not understand who you are in Christ, if you don't understand what is in you and the power that you have, you will not use it. It starts with realizing that you're new creations, that you're no longer slaves to the flesh. Those chains have been broken. You've been moved from death to life, as John says in verse 524. Though we battle with the flesh daily, we can defeat the flesh and sin through the power of the Spirit. Okay? So how do we do that? Well, we achieve victory three ways. The first thing is knowing. This is knowing the implications of being unified in Christ's death and resurrection. And when I say know it, I'm saying you believe it. It's easy for us to say because we get eternal life by faith. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus and that he was, you know, he's my Savior. I believe that. But then we start talking about weirder or harder to conceptualize things like dying with Christ, rising again to a new life. That's a little bit harder to conceptualize, but do you believe that and do you understand its implications? That you are unified with Christ's death and his resurrection? That you no longer have to sin? Know that and believe it. Because that's the foundation for achieving victory. Which goes hand in hand with number two, which is considering ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. We're going to see it in just a second. We consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And we're going to see what this word consider means. Because it means to think about it, it means to calculate it, and to consider it as true. You're taking an inventory of the situation, assessing it, and saying, yeah, I get that. I should be dead to sin. It doesn't have power over me, and I can stop it. In the power of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm alive to God. Okay? And the third thing is, once you've known it, and you've considered it, and it's up in your head, and it's in your heart, then you live it out. You present yourselves to God as those who have been made alive. This is congruity of self. This is saying, I am going to have integrity with who I truly am. My identity is in Christ, and I've died to sin and risen again to a new life, and now I'm going to live like it. I'm going to put those two things together. That's what presenting yourselves to God as those who have been made alive means. And we're going to see that. I'm sorry. You're okay. So remember from lesson one that Paul has just told everybody at the start of chapter six, in verse three through ten, that we're to know that we have been unified with Christ and baptized into his death and resurrection. Uh, our old self has been crucified, that is our flesh, and we've been freed from sin so that we can walk in the newness of life. So let's read it again. Here's the no. Remember, no consider present. Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. There's the, there's the what and the why. We've died and uh, risen to a new life, so live like it. 
For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, and we have, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. This doesn't mean that you won't sin. This just means that you're freed from the power of sin. The chains have been broken, which he explains later in chapter 7 and 8. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never going to die again, because death is no longer master over him. Because the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. The point here, under the knowledge part, of the implications of being unified in Christ's resurrection, death and resurrection, are that believers are new creations and have the capacity to walk in the newness of life. Okay? You have the capacity. You have this new ability. You did it before, but now you do. You have the capacity to walk in the newness of life. Alright, so if you've believed and you put your faith in Christ, did you die with Him? Are you unified with His death? Are you unified with His resurrection? Know that, because it's foundational. When God sees you, He sees you in Christ. You have a new capacity, because just as Jesus was raised to the newness of life, so are we. And we get the opportunity now here on this earth to live like it. Until we do it in the kingdom. When the flesh is dealt with permanently. Alright, so now let's consider. Because in verse 11, so he just made all this stuff. He just said all this stuff in verses 3 through 10. Now in verse 11 he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Are we, are we truly in this body uh, capable of sinning? Yeah, we are. Mm-hmm. But Paul says here, consider yourselves to be dead to it. Because that's going to help you not do it. He's not, it doesn't have the idea of fake it until you make it. But he's saying, have congruity in your true self. Your true self is sinless. Because you've unified with Christ's death and resurrection. You put yourself in the old self that's been crucified, but you put yourself back into the bondage of the flesh when you choose to do otherwise. So he says, so consider yourself as that new person. Know who you are. Take inventory of it. Let's see what this verse tells us what the perspective of believers should be. Paul's saying here that Christian individuals should understand their newness and view themselves as someone dead to sin with the ability to stop sinning. So consider yourselves... Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. I've told you before that when I do single discipleship or mass discipleship with these young men, this part has the ability to be life-changing for them. Because they genuinely believe they can't stop their sexual sin. And God said that's not true. You You can't stop it. It starts with knowing who you are. It starts with knowing your identity in Christ. You've identified with Jesus' death and his resurrection. The chains of the flesh are broken, 
you don't have to do it anymore. They can know who you are and consider yourselves dead to that sin. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God. The word for consider used here in the Bible is logizome. It has the idea of reckoning, counting, weighing, or calculating something as true, or taking an inventory of all this stuff and coming to the positive conclusion that it is true. This word refers more to a fact than a supposition or an opinion. It's not like, I think it is, or I suppose that to be true. It's saying that you've looked at the facts of the matter, which are that you have died with Christ, you have risen again to a new life, and you believe that to be true. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Paul's saying to evaluate the situation and calculate it as true that we are dead to sin and alive to God based on these variables. Okay, We, we said in week one, the foundation for this is Jesus Christ died paying for sin. Jesus Christ rose conquering death. That part's foundational. That's Jesus' work. Because of his work, we can gain eternal life based on faith in him for it. He was the only person qualified to be our substitute because of these two things. And because of that, he now offers eternal life. And all we have to do is put our faith in him. Okay? And so that takes us to this next point. A person believes in Christ as Savior. That is you and I and everybody else. And the Holy Spirit baptizes these believers into the body. The baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you are going to go around to different countries speaking in tongues. Baptism of the Holy Spirit means that you're placing union with Christ and you've identified with His death and resurrection. The Holy Spirit baptizes believers into the body of Christ, unifying them in Christ's death and resurrection. and breaking the believer's bondage to the flesh. A person believes in Christ as Savior. The Holy Spirit baptizes them into the body of Christ, which unifies them in Christ's death and resurrection and breaks the believer's bondage to the flesh. I wrote it out this way in a bulleted format because this is it. This is what it means to be a new creation based on Romans 6, which is the next part. Believers become new creation. So at the beginning of this class, and I said, what does it mean to be in Christ? And what does it mean to be a new creation? In a short, concise, four bullet points, this is it. Jesus died paying for sin. Jesus rose to conquering death. Sin and death are dealt with. We have eternal life by faith in Him. When a person believes in Jesus, the Holy Spirit baptizes them into the body of Christ, which unifies us in Christ's death and resurrection and breaks the bondage of the flesh for believers. The implications of that are that we should now know that we've died and risen again with Christ, and we consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Okay, that's all knowledge-based. 
That's what's in our heart and in our head. Now we want our actions to match those things. So in order to do that, we present ourselves. Look what he says here in Romans 6, 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you're not under law, but you're under grace. I want to touch on a couple of things before we move on. If believers automatically do this, then why did Paul write this? Why does he need to tell us to not let sin reign in our mortal body if sin weren't capable of reigning in our mortal body? It blows my mind that people read this and say that believers will definitely live this out. Paul wasted ink he wasted his time, his effort, and his energy, not just here in Romans 6, 7, and 8, Galatians 5 and 6, but most of the New Testament. Why in Galatians did he say you're called to freedom? Just don't let it turn into an opportunity for the flesh. He wouldn't need to tell us that if we automatically lived it out. It's not how it works. He does this to encourage us, to help us know it, to help us consider it, so that we will present it. Presenting is the application of the knowledge and understanding of the truths that he presented in verses 3 through 11. We, and I'll get back to that in just a second. That's the life that we should live as believers, but we always don't. Knowing, no, consider present, knowing that we're new creations with new capacities, we should live it out by presenting ourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Because at one point, before we believed, we were dead people walking. But we've been made alive, and we should live like it. Presenting is the application of the knowledge. Okay? When we say no, consider present, presenting is simply the application of the knowledge and understanding of our position in Christ. Presenting is the application of the knowledge and understanding our position. So when I say application, I go back and look at this verse again. Go back to Romans 6, 12 through 14. What is the application? If presenting is the application, then based on this verse, what is it? When I say application, what are we supposed to do? Stop saying! Isn't that the point? Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who are dead from the or as those who are alive from the dead. And your members, the parts of your body, as instruments of righteousness for Him. He's saying, use your body to serve others. Use your parts of your body, the members of your instruments, to promote God, to be a giver, to be selfless. Don't present it to the flesh as those who are alive or dead, like we used to be. 
That's the application. Presenting yourself. Uh, later in the series, I told you a couple times that we're going to go to Romans 12, 1 and 2, which Paul begs us, he urges us, by the mercies of God, to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Sacrifice is inherently selfless. We're going to see Paul tell the Romans later, I'm begging you, based on what I told you several chapters ago, because of what Jesus has done for you, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Because presenting is the application of knowing it and considering it. What if you know it and you consider it, but you never live it up? Seriously, think about that. If you know that you died and rose again with Christ, and you know that you have the ability to walk in a new way, but you never do it, what happens? First of all, do you have eternal life? You do. But what is the result of not living it up? So for you, for us, there, yeah, so there is a self-aspect to that to where we're going to lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll talk about rewards later and bring it all full circle. The page is right. You don't earn any rewards over here. You can't. We saw last week that the mindset on the flesh is death, it's hostile to God, and it can't please God. There's no reward here. There's no reward in that. There's rewards here. If we endure, we'll reign with him. Uh, you think about the parable of the talents and the parable of the meanings. Those who took what God gave them, those who knew what God gave them, they considered what God gave them, and they put it into service for him, are rewarded. And it's the same thing. But what, what else happens? Take yourself out of the equation. What else happens if Christians don't present what if they just store it up? Store the knowledge in their head and never put it into practice? You don't have a testimony for one thing. You yeah, you're going to be... Okay, yeah, okay, there it is. You don't show the light to others. How will God know that... How will men know that we're His disciples? By, by the fruits of our spirit. By, yeah, by our love for one for another. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. If we don't do this... The body of Christ suffers. If the members of, body, of, the, of Christ's body are absent, if they're disjointed, if they're in competition, whatever, the body suffers. And we're called to make disciples, and we're called to be light to a crooked and perverse generation. So don't just know it, and don't just consider it, but do it. Present yourselves to God. You don't have to. But there are consequences to that. Not uh, eternal life consequences, but eternal experience consequences. Maybe some disciplinary action? Oh, yeah, let's get into that. Okay, so that's next. Uh, so I said, well, yeah, there could be some disciplinary action. It's uncomfortable, but it's true. And because we have this fleshly pool, we're going to succumb. 
some more than others. Hopefully we don't, but we're, you're inherently going to. Because even though the flesh has lost its power over us, it can still enslave and affect believers and unbelievers respectively. Unbelievers don't have a choice, but believers do. We've seen that the flesh enslaves the unbeliever in sin, leading to eternal separation or eternal death. But death or separation for believers can be temporal and extends into lots of different aspects of our life. It could be separation in relationships. Your sin can create separation in relationships. It could bring about physical sickness. What are some examples of sin bringing physical sickness? Okay, so yeah, alcohol creates liver problems. Uh, STDs, that's a natural consequence to a physical sin. Uh, you know, dr- drunkenness can, you know, dr- drive, driving accidents. Uh, what about greater, more passive effects? the children who are exposed to that stuff in the home, is that going to affect them later in life? It's going to create problems for them that they're going to deal with and struggle with for the rest of their life. People don't consider that for Christians. They always want to make it about eternal life, and that's not what this is about. You can have a temporal loss of fellowship or a temporal separation in a variety of aspects of life, including of your fellowship with God. Does God want you to be in fellowship with Him? Mm-hmm. Why? Because He loves us. Because He loves us. Is it best for God that we're in fellowship with Him? No. No. It's best for us that we're in fellowship with Him. Just like your children. If your kid is running out into a busy street, are you going to say, I love him, so I'm going to let him do what he wants? No. You are going to say, because I love you, I can't let you do that. You're going to get an owie. <clears throat> and how often in our lives are we headed for owies that God disciplines us? And I don't mean necessarily punitive. <clears throat> Discipline can have the idea of training someone or showing them the right way to go. It doesn't always mean spanking. And so Russ says, God may discipline us if we're out of fellowship. If we're here, should we expect discipline? If you're a believer, you should. And that's not a good thing. It is ultimately a good thing, but it's an unpleasant thing. I'll say that. And we're going to see it. And I brought up David earlier, and so let's just go to David. Consider the man after God's own heart. You guys know the story. David, the chapter starts, in a time when kings go out to battle, David's at home. So it's already said, David's a king, he's not out of battle, he's at home. David goes out on the roof, sees Bathsheba bathing, and says, I want that. So he sends guys to go get him. They said, isn't this the wife of one of your mighty men? David doesn't care. He wants to promote himself. He sees something, he wants it, so he takes it. What happens? She's pregnant. Uh-oh. David's got two things to cover up. A baby and his sexual sin. 
So in order to cover up the baby, he goes and calls uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home, hoping that he'll go sleep with her. And he doesn't do it because he's an honorable man. He said, my brothers are out fighting. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sleep on the porch. Well, that creates a problem. So David sends him out in the field and says, send him out on the front lines. Then when the battle starts, have everybody retreat. So Uriah goes out to fight, <clears throat> turns around, nobody's there. nobody's there, and he dies. So David, a man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, has now murdered somebody after he has committed adultery. Let's see what he says. From, a choir, from the choir director of Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Nathan, by the way, gave the story of a guy who had one little lamb, and somebody took it and killed it. And David said, that person could be you know, avenged tenfold. And Nathan said, so you will be. That's what's going to happen to you. Because that, that person's you. So let's see what he says. David, after his sin, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me, cleanse me from sin. What's David doing here? Yeah, he's confessing. He's admitting his transgression and his iniquity. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned. Which is interesting, because he killed Uriah and he forced Bathsheba to become an adulteress. Against you and you only I have sinned. And I've done evil. What is evil in your sight? So that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be water than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Old Testament, Holy Spirit didn't indwell every believer. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, which he's doing, by the way. We're using David's example. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O oh God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Your favor do, by your favor, do good desire, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering, the whole burnt offering. Then the young bulls we offer on the altar. This passage details David's confession. Okay? He's admitting his sin and acknowledging the implications. David's confessing. This passage details David's confession. He's admitting his sins and acknowledging the implications. Okay. Before we move on, what is the application for us? 
Confess it. Be honest about it. There's people who've been a lot worse than you and done a lot worse than you that God loved and forgiven. He is a loving, kind, long-suffering, or patient God. He wants us to confess, and He always has. It's with Adam and Eve. He showed up. What'd you do? He knew what they did. He just wanted to confess. With Cain and Abel, where's your brother? He knew where his brother was. He just wanted Cain to confess. When we can, when we don't confess, we keep that separation in play. Our fellowship is broken because we're hiding and we're not admitting that what God wants is right and what we did is wrong. Okay, so he's confessed here. He's admitted his sin. He's acknowledged the implications. Now, let's go to Psalms 32 where he details the consequences of his sin and also the restoration of his fellowship. A Psalm of David, I'm asking how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. That's what a lack of confession is. A lack of confession is you deceiving yourself to say that I'm not acknowledging that what I did is wrong. And I also am not acknowledging that what God wants is right. David is saying here, I'm blessed. In my spirit, there's no deceit. Because look, before, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For your day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. There's several ways to look at this. This is him when he kept silent about his sin. So he's he's hitting the rewind button. Back before I had confessed it, when I was silent about it, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. This could be guilt, but it could also be God saying, uh, "Why are you being silent about this? I'm going to have to discipline you." Could have been through sickness. Could have been through a variety of things. We don't know, but we do know that for day and night, His hand was heavy upon him. So even if it was guilt, it was guilt from God, not guilt from David. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And if you remember, back in the psalm that we just read, what he said? He said that the bones which you have broken, it could be allegorical, who knows. But long story short, his vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But then, in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. In my, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what happened? He's forgiven. Forgave, not just forgiven the sin, he forgave the guilt of the sin. There's two things there. The sin is certainly forgiven, but so is David's guilt. That's interesting. And great news for us. Because I think there's a lot of Christians who can't get over the fact that they've done something wrong. And they feel like they, that they need to always continually. continually make up for that sin. Well, the fact of the matter is that's already done. Jesus did that on the cross. 
It's important to acknowledge it. It's important to confess it. It's also important to understand that he forgives sin. And that he's dealt with it. If you've confessed it, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's the truth about who he is and his character. And that's great news for the believer. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach you. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. We see from this passage, number one, sin creates separation from God. Sin creates separation from God. We already knew that. The wages of sin is death. We saw in the very first lesson in Romans 6.23. Sin creates separation from God. Eternal separation for unbelievers. Eternal separation for unbelievers. And temporal, which means temporary, hopefully, <laughs> temporary separation for believers. Okay? In order to restore your fellowship, what do we have to do? Confess, Confess it. It's not a blank here, it's not on your page right now. But you are separated from God, at least temporal. Not in your relationship. You have eternal life and you don't lose it based on your sin. But you can break fellowship with Him. Number two, we see from this passage that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Besides eternal separation for unbelievers and separation of fellowship for believers, sin still has consequences. Some of, them, some of them are immediate. Let's go ahead. This is true, but we, we need to be careful that we don't fall into the path of saying it's sin that sends people to hell, separates oh, yeah. people from yeah. God eternally. That's, well, that's kind of the, the Baptist line, maybe other places too. And there's a whole different mindset that, you know, it's sin that sends people to hell, and it's not, it's not really true. Because of our sin, you know, if we don't believe... You're right. I should have worded that differently. So, what does send people to hell? They're disbelieving. Unbelief. Unbelief sends people to hell. Not their sin. So, in a sense, unbelief is the unforgivable sin. Uh, but you're right. It's important to delineate and to distinguish the fact that people don't go to hell because of their sin. They go to hell because they haven't trusted in Christ. Or they haven't believed, as John you know, 3 says. Can you elaborate on number, number 6 about surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him? What does that mean? Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Uh, um, that's a good question. I'm wondering if I'm saying, okay, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time 
when you may be found. And it seems to be saying, but you can't surely be found in a flood of great waters because they will not reach him. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'll look at that and come back to it. Okay. Yeah. I just copied and pasted the whole song. I was really focused on three, four, five, but I'll go look at that. But to Kevin's point, thank you for saying that. Sin doesn't send people to eternal condemnation. Unbelief does. <clears throat> yeah. So, some consequences are immediate, some are not. Some consequences are inherent to the sin, an obvious consequence to the sin. You think about illicit sex, migraine, STD, uh, unplanned pregnancy. That may be a consequence that somebody doesn't want. Some consequences may be unknown to me, by the way, which is interesting to think about. If and we were, yeah. Just like David, and just like us, just because God forgives us doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be lingering consequences that continue mm -hmm. even after that point. Yeah, that's we, we may still have a liver that's no good anymore because we soaked ourselves in alcohol. Yep. We might be forgiven for that and change, but it doesn't necessarily mean we'll be given a Healed. liver. Yeah. Right. yeah, that's a good point. If we remain in sin and forsake our fellowship with God, the consequences could be divine intervention, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Just like you intervene with your kids when something bad is happening to them, it's a biblical truth that God will discipline you to bring you back into fellowship with Him. We saw in David's agony and in his son's death, he was silent, his body wasted away, he confessed, and God took away his guilt. Let's see what Scripture says here in Hebrews 12. He says, Have you not resisted? Or, excuse me, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Verse 7. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whose father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we've all become partakers, and you're legitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers as discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our parents, disciplined us for a short time and seemed best of them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So based on this passage, is it a good thing to be disciplined? Yeah. It is. Why spank, is it? If you spank your kid for running out in the highway, he probably ain't going to do that no more and he's going to not be killed by a car. Yeah. It's a good thing for him to understand. What about or What about the implication of being disciplined by God? What does that kind of prove? That we're his children. That we're his children. I'll say this. If you're living in sin, 
And you don't feel like there's anything, any consequences to that over a long period of time? I would ask, have you put your faith in Jesus? Maybe you haven't. Maybe you just think that, you know, I don't know. But it's important to know that for those whom the Lord receives, He scourges. He disciplines. And it's for our good. Even though it may not seem joyful in the moment, to those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Look what he says in James. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's the same idea. It's the same idea. It doesn't actually have to be discipline, but as we walk in the newness of life, we should expect discipline. You should. If you've broken fellowship with God, you've yielded to the flesh, and you haven't confessed, uh, expect discipline. Being tempted is not sin, by the way. A lot of people want to confuse those, but they're not. Succumbing to the temptation of the flesh is sin. If we forsake our fellowship with God by staying in the flesh and placing ourselves back under its bondage, we should expect discipline. It's for our good because He loves us. Two truths in the same vein. The testing of our faith produces endurance. And it's for discipline that we endure. Endurance and enduring. The Lord disciplines us for our own good, even though it creates sorrow. Because afterwards it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The point is that the flesh will tempt you to believe in sin. If you yield, then you may succeed in resisting, but sometimes you may fail. When you acknowledge it with God, uh, when you do, Acknowledge it with God. Don't hide it. That reads weird. But when you do sin, or when you do succumb to the flesh, acknowledge it with God and don't hide it. He's your hiding place, as David said. And in, in Him alone is peace. He loves you all the way and wants what's absolutely best for you. Because of that, He'll wear you out. And that's what the word scourge means, to take the hide off. He will wear you out to assist in the restoration of your fellowship with Him. So expect it. So quick summary and application, and we'll go. There's a tension between the spirit and the flesh of every believer. Victory in the Christian life is attained by walking by the spirit instead of the flesh. Okay? That's being selfless. That's sacrificing. That's promoting God, Jesus, and others. That's considering others as more important than yourselves. That's love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. A believer's actions give evidence. That's what he says. It's evident if you're walking by the flesh. A believer's actions give evidence to whether he she's walking by the Spirit or fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Know your position in Christ. Know that you're in Christ. That when He died, you died. When He rose, you rose. You're identified in union with Him. Consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to Christ. Turn it over. 
consider the facts, accept it to be true, and then present yourselves to God with your actions and your words. Sin creates separation for the believer. Okay? That's important to understand. You do not lose your relationship with God, but you do break fellowship. So, confession is important. Because in confession, we maintain our fellowship after we succumb to temptation. The Lord disciplines for our good and because He loves us. In this, we persevere or we endure and we yield the pretty peaceful fruit of righteousness. So here's five quick applications. Defend against the flesh by taking steps to proactively conform to Christ's will. That's just another way of saying walk by the Spirit. This is accomplished through walking by the Spirit and maintaining fellowship through prayer, confession, scripture reading, memorization, meditation, reflection, and especially in your love for God and others. Two, test your faith, and by that I mean your faithfulness, by looking for the fruit of the Spirit and the deeds of the flesh in your actions. It's important. A lot of times people aren't self-aware. So take inventory. Learn, and last week one of the applications was think about your own life. Where do you, are you starting, can you start to identify places where you're weak? Places that tempt you in your flesh. This is the same idea. Test it. Start thinking about, okay, am I demonstrating love? Am I promoting peace? Uh, can people, can other people conceptualize my life by the fruit of the Spirit or by the deeds of the flesh? Remind yourself that you're in Christ. This is part of knowing it and considering it. You're dead to sin and you're alive to God. And then put integrity. And what I mean by that is when your word meets your action. If you know that you have died with Christ and risen again to a new life, then act like it. When your words meet your actions. Let your actions match who you are. That's integrity. When you fail, confess. That's a big deal. And that's a big deal. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to write a song about it. You can confess immediately after you sin and give your restoration back. If you remain in sin that you're unwilling or unable to deal with, expect discipline. Because it's coming. And it's not necessarily going to be a good thing. I mean, it's not going to be a pleasant thing. It's a good thing, it's not pleasant. Thank you for your questions, and I'll look that up. I'll look at that song. Um, thanks for your input, Kevin. Does anybody else have any questions before we go? Okay. Next week, we're going to look at uh, the world system. So we're going to do two lessons on the world system, two lessons on the devil.